In a world gone mad, the crazy people might just know what to do. Welcome to Mad Practice, sanity skills for crazy times. I'm JB. And I'm Cole. We're so glad you're here, wherever you think you are. Hi, JD. (laughs) Hi, Cole. How are you doing today? Oh, my favorite, favorite question on a day like today. JD, how are you really doing? Yeah, I'm a really, I'm not, I'm having a hard day. I'm having a hard day today. Yeah. I'm having a, I'm having a day full of, um, um, I'm overwhelmed. I, I have a list of things to do that I think I'm keeping track of and I'm, I'm missing appointments. I miss, I missed a phone call this morning. I missed an appointment. I'm, you know, so I'm like right on the edge of, uh, a place I do not want to fall into, which is like, it's all too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not all too much. It's just a lot right now. And sometimes it gets like this. And I would rather have this feeling of overwhelm and heaviness on my chest than the, than the feeling that I had when I wasn't able to participate at all. So I remind myself that this feeling is actually a luxury, <laughs> but that I've, I've gone too far. I've put too many things in the wagon. The horse is not moving. It's like, I have not given the oats, not <laughs> given enough water. And so I'm sitting in the wagon and it's okay right now. Cause here I am. This stop is defined today which I really appreciate It's like, we've been doing this kind of regularly. So I, you know, yeah. the wagon is at the station. I don't know if wagons went to stations. I'm, miss- I'm mixing my metaphors now, but I feel it's a wagon. I'm not even up for a train on a track. I'm like definitely in a wagon, covered wagon, horse. That's where my mind is. And we're in this modern world where it's like, what is that ringing that keeps happening in the wagon? And it's like, <laughs> Oh, that's a text notification, which me and the horse look at each other like, what, what, what is it? Just where's the oat bag? Like all we need to worry about. So I was very happy when I realized, oh, look, we're, we're stopped here. We stopped here. We're going to see Cole. We're going to talk with Cole. We're going to see Camille on the little, my rectangle friends. I'm starting to doubt that you're real or that you have lower bodies, but I'm taking that on good faith. <laughs> so yeah. It's a hard day. It's a really, I know our topic is shame. <laughs> so I was like, well, I can, I can show up for this one. You know, it would have been a real drag if I'd been totally together and we would, we decided to <laughs> walk, you know, talk through shame. And I'd be like, well, I don't even remember that emotion, Cole. But anyway, that's me. You? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, thanks for, thanks for letting me in a little bit on how you're doing. And I'm glad that we can be a little rest stop. You, we, I mean, like by we, like Camille and I, and like just us in this conversation. Because so I think it is great to be able to have those moments or times, meetings, activities, things like that, that are, that feel active and restful. That that's, yeah, that that's really, really great. I have to tell you something. You didn't actually answer how you were feeling. I know. Just, just, you know, you did respond to my feelings but but how are you feeling Cole uh you know I'm I'm actually feeling pretty good today um 
I wish that I could tell you exactly why, like what I did over the last 24 hours that made me feel better because general circumstances haven't changed that much, but wherever I am in the, you know, last time we talked about the metaphor of the COVID roller coaster and how it isn't always doing the trick. And what I've been thinking lately is of tidal waves, you know, like a, a tide coming in and out. That feels a little actually more in tune to the, the sort of cyclical nature and, and it's a little less extreme. Um, Cause my, mood shifts haven't been a total roller coaster. I've I've had periods like that before, but it hasn't been that. It's been more sometimes the, you know, sometimes I'm on dry land, sometimes the water's up to my waist. Uh but not I'm not, you know, dog paddling. I'm not I'm not drowning by any means. So in the in the, you know, ebb and flow of of my mood and of the world, I feel I feel pretty good. That's great. Part of it, yeah, part of it is just uh, a better sense of like compartmentalizing. Like I was saying this to Camille, our producer earlier, of just like being able to sort of take the day in a couple hour chunks at a time and not not get too buried looking at the long list of, of things to do or getting hooked on the things that I can't change, you know, that are that are ever present. So yeah, I've been doing okay. What I have been what I was thinking about just now though is as I was getting ready for this, I had a little window of time today and I was doing some of our like podcast business stuff. And one of the things I was thinking about is for the podcast, it's a bit of a return to social media for me. Because mm-hmm. I did something I was very happy with, uh, you know, maybe nine months ago or so and just took myself off of social media, just hadn't hadn't opened Facebook or Twitter or Instagram in, in months and months and months. And that was a pretty good move for me with this podcast we are keen to you know sort of meet people meet listeners you know have have a bit of an online community and so i've been re-entering social media and just thinking of our topic for today the emotion of today is shame and what a what a fraught landscape of shame social media tends to be and and a big reason why i left Mm -hmm. you know in general i think the reasons i left were like each each social media channel individually was sparking a particular emotion for me that I was not a big fan of. I was not enjoying the experience. You know, Facebook was making me really judgy of my friends and Twitter was making me really angry about politics and Instagram mostly just made me want to buy things. Um, <laughs> cause I, I just, cause I followed a lot of, uh, Instagram accounts that were mostly guys showing off like leather boots and like, <laughs> raw denim. <laughs> and so I just would look at Instagram and just want to buy jeans and boots. And so all of those feelings, you know, like feeling judgmental, feeling angry, feeling jealous. It was just, it wasn't great for me. But it, but when we've gone back to social media through the Mad Practice account, it's starting from scratch. Like we don't, like, you know, as of yesterday, we don't follow anyone yet and no one follows us. And there does feel like an opportunity to take that experience of, of that sort of slow boil that I wasn't totally aware I was in. Of you know, I was a, a frog in this social media pot, not always conscious of the temperature changes that were happening. And now being able to go back in with that awareness and how to re-engage, re-approach social media, knowing that those those triggers are out there. Mm-hmm. 
largely recognizing that I think the social media companies understand my nervous system better than I do. Like they know how to, they know how to push my buttons more so than I even know what my buttons are. Mm -hmm. And so it's just having that kind of awareness as we start to decide what we put out on social media and maybe more importantly, for the emotional hit that we'll get, what we'll seek out, what we'll allow into our feeds, what kinds of engagement we want to have. Because yeah, I think I'm super excited to talk to you about shame because I think it's such a potent, powerful omnipresent emotion and experience for so many of us, particularly online and and through social media. And just knowing that that is out there in abundance, and that I think we can have some mad practice in our social media time that can, if not totally insulate us from it, but can, can dampen it down a bit, can help us help us be okay, (laughs) while while still like finding the benefits, finding the, the nice pro-social sides of social media. Yeah. Yeah. I really hear you there. And I, I think it's a super important relationship to, to field note, you know, to, to be really individual and deliberate and that it, it is a real example to me of all or nothing. I don't want to be, I think that the community organizing and the what I call under grassroots organizing, like the dirt, <laughs> the dirt, you know, before things are even organized into a grassroots is so important, you know, like people who are connecting in authentic ways, especially in the gaps in systems and all the learning and connection that's available to us that wasn't before. You know, I have all kinds of um, gender nonconforming communities, um, all kinds of mental health communities, you know, things that I read, sites I like, um, alternative places, check-in places like the Samaritans in the UK are great, have great ways of checking in with, you know, where you are in suicidal ideation and thinking. And I have so many little resources that I never had before, but it also flares comparison which I really think is the mental health problem of our time is just this idea that all of this churns up in us, this idea of comparison. And so, you know, what success is, what value is, what meaning in my life is, has to be a really personal relationship with me. I want to be able to have friends and family that I could talk to that about, but I have to be really careful not to get caught and it's hard because now they do know they're, you know, it's the manufacturing of shame, essentially. And the cure is consumerism, you know, and I mean, that's an oversimplification. But, you know, I think particularly as a person, as, as people who feel extremes of emotions, it is like, OK, how, how am I watching this? How am I relating today? And there are days where I shouldn't go on at all. And there are certain types that are better for me and not better for me. Um, you know, like Twitter, for example, it, I have to be really careful to my intake of, it's like a food pyramid, you know? So it's like, I can't just digest uh, disaster journalism or I am really in trouble, but I also can't, I don't, I'm not interested in living a life where roses and puppies and kittens and love sites you know, I, I, I need to know what's going on, but I have to be really in touch with myself about mm, you, you, that's enough for today. 
that's that's just enough. And now you got to go and watch, you know, Sesame Street celebrity clips singing song. And and for me, it 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 has become that because it used to be so based in fear, like I I can't handle that. I can't handle any of that. And then I just felt so disconnected. So so it's really this thing. And then you know, not not shaming myself for not being able to keep up with absolutely everything, for not being able to go on Facebook every day and people I care about seeing the pictures of their kids and their whatever, because I can feel it. It's a little bit, I'm a little bit, I call it the thin veil. My, you know, my skin is a little bit thin. And so I'm going to feel sad if I'm like, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm this old and I'm, and I missed that. I should have done that already. And so it's like, can I, can I stay with myself and be honest about where I am? Which is the trick. Because lots of times I want to be, no problem. I am made of Teflon. I can handle it all. And I, and I can't. Sometimes I go on Facebook, see my, my friend's kids, miss them so much that I'm crying for an hour. <laughs> you know? So sometimes I'm like, yeah. okay not going to do that or whatever. I want to be able to celebrate people's joy and accomplishments, but some days I'm not there. So yeah, it's. Yeah. I think that trick of that trick of learning to disengage for a little bit so that you can stay engaged in the long term is really important. I think particularly when you are opening yourself up to not just, you know, your own, your own pain, the, the, the craggy, edgy parts of, of your own life, but really trying to embrace others as well. Mm-hmm. That you got to that, that in order to do that, to make a life in doing that, mm-hmm. like you have to, you have to take breaks. Yeah, and it's so individual, and I and I, I really that's why field notes is so interesting to me because it's like, it, you know, this idea that we change from moment to moment. <clears throat> you know that self awareness is not just something for meditators, you know, like it's not just this idea that's a religious or a spiritual idea. It actually is the key to, you know, some sort of steadiness in the world, some sort of understanding even that overwhelm is part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so even in social media, suddenly I could get bombed. I could see something that I, but I can handle it, it, it as long as I don't go down the rabbit hole. So if I see something really shocking on Facebook has become bad for announcing deaths. <laughs> you know, so you're just scrolling. Like Facebook is like no curator. You know, so it's like new baby, we went camping. Oh, this person died. And it's like, wow, the turn that the brain is making, that the heart is making. But knowing that, okay, that's it for today. I gotta handle that. I gotta sit in the grief of that. I didn't know that person died. I gotta make a little space. I got to make a little ritual, not just keep scrolling, just going to numb me out. But I, I, I think that shame is, you know, in all of this is the moment that I feel like I'm not enough, like I should be better at taking all these things in. I shouldn't feel such a bounce between the baby picture and the death. I should be able to read the news and, and not be so sad. I should be able to because the sadness keeps me from taking action or all the judgments, you know? So when we looked at these um, definitions cold and we, 
the standard Oxford dictionary that we're using and then the Medium article, they were the same, right? Like shame as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. And I think for me that that's a really interesting point because it, it does always seem to, even if it's not conscious, attach to something's wrong. Something's I've done something wrong. And I, I'm a fool because of it. I should have learned to grow a thicker skin. I should have, you know, the list just starts. I should have this. I should have that. I should be further along. Why am I still so sick? That's for me. That's when I know shame is present is when those obsessive thoughts and, you know, my, you know, I have voices in my head, like literally, literally, <laughs> because people always talk about hearing things in their head, but it's different. They are the shame. They are the shame posse. They are the, they, that's, that's what they, that's what they're good at. And so for me, it, shame triggers those voices getting louder. And it took me a long time to understand that I didn't do anything wrong to make them go louder. That's, that a series of things happened outside of my control. And then now I have to accept that they're loud and they want me to, hurt myself and or not be on planet earth because my shame, you know, goes from zero to Hiroshima in 10 seconds. I got to be really, really on top of it. It's one of those feelings that it's not, I can't, I can't mess around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think in that dictionary definition, you just read like the the second word is painful. It's a painful feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think that like you describing it, the signal of it being that obsessive, internal process as well because i think that's another effect that shame has is it really pulls us away from others and pulls us out of the out of the world out of our communities because you can get so you, you all of your attention can so obsessively turn inward to deal with it or to or to sink into it in that way that you blame yourself you know when you're um experiencing something or you're you know getting increasingly hard on yourself yeah, I think that self-blame is, is such a big part of it, which which is also one of the things that makes me, when I get more upset, beyond just critical, but upset about some of the now very normalized messages that come out through like the self-help industry or or other things like that, that try to frame everything that's wrong in your life as an internal individual problem mm -hmm. <laughs> that you can just meditate your way out of or you can you know find the find the new life hack or you can be more a self-actualized productive person that does not count for the the social and and cultural constructs around you so then if, if you're still upset if you're still shamed if you're still feeling like you're failing at at this life that you're told you can have if you just figure out your own your own self if you just work on yourself and do it hard enough and, and if you're committed enough to self-improvement then if, if it's still bad then it's your fault yeah and that i think is is quite gross like it's just like it's it's a gross way for to make people feel and and does like trigger more spiraling you know it, it's you, you spiral inward yeah you pull away from others yeah. because because you know shame is a, a real kind of social emotion like it doesn't happen in isolation like it happens often in, in how you think or you know either are in reality or in your perception being perceived by other people yeah it's hard to be humiliated 
by yourself. You know, like humiliation happens when you're witnessed or feel like you're being witnessed. Or you're cycling regret or you're in the past and it's something, I think it can happen when you're by yourself. It might get triggered, uh, you know, externally. But but what I was going to say is I think this is the stigma of mental illness, right? In, in a nutshell, is that, you know, uh, the trope that's out there is as long as you're on your medications, like it's like medications are magic, you know, as long as you're on your medications, everything's fine. And all this, all the, you know, stories on TV and in the movies and theater are like the people who go off their medications, you know, and then all these dramatic, terrible things happen. And the truth of it is that, you know, medications can sometimes help, you know, in, in different things temporarily or long-term, but there's still so much else that has to be done. And it's all put on the individual. And I know one of my shame is like, I don't call the game soon enough. You know, I, I, I will not want to cancel something to do with work or something socially because it's too much. It's, I can feel it. I'm, I'm agitated. It, the voices are loud. It's not a good day for me to be around people. And now I'll cancel, you know, I'll cancel things. I don't feel like I need to explain myself too much. But then I go into a bit of a shame spiral about, you know, if people are disappointed, especially if it's a social thing. And then I'm like, oh, God damn, you know, what's wrong with me? Why couldn't I? And they say, why couldn't you have given me more notice? And I'll be like, I, why couldn't I have given more notice? Why? You know, and it just, always trying to uh, hide the mental illness in a way, you know, like, like appear normal while doing, you know, it's like, it's like the pictures of the ducks that are just like so calm on the water and my feet are like, like, I don't just have one pair of little paddlers under there. There's all kinds of, you know, there's a cake mixer, there's a little outboard motor, there's all this stuff happening under there. And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm a, I'm a duck. I'm a duck just like you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna come and join all the other ducks, and it's gonna be good. You know, I think part of this peer-to-peer stuff, you know, is how do we hold each other and support each other and ch- and change the systems even a little bit. You know, like we've had the concept of mental health days for a long time, but I I I'd love to see how many people are actually have a mental health day after it's gone too far. And how many have one when they're feeling the ramp up? Yeah. And is it just diagnosed people or is it people that, you know, can kind of feel, hmm, my brain is really busy. I just need a nothing day. I need a pajama day. And, you know, that, that, that single, the use of that term itself is stigmatized or it's, it's, it's light. Oh, I'm on a mental health day. I'm taking a mental for me, it's like, yeah, I'm going to try not to kill myself today. Sorry, I had to cancel my meetings. And, you know, it's like, I can't really phone in. Uh, I'm suicidal. I can't really phone that in. Right. Yeah. And so part of it is, you know, not unlike, you know, being a queer person and having to come out. It's that same feeling. Like, I still feel I'm not completely out about who I am. You know, I'm like, I show different parts. I tell different stories. I try to find ways to help people understand. Like, like I think of it more as a brain injury than just a mental health thing. I, I, I notice how I talk in different places. And sometimes it's like, I lose the threads. I like, I, I wish the world, I could just be like, 
this is my brain's not working too well today. And I'm going to be in the bathtub crying and listening to my, my talking book and eating uh, sandwiches and uh, talking to a couple of friends for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And I really wish the world was like, cool, no problem. Yeah, I wish that too. Well, because I think it is in some ways more normalized or common conversations, let's say in the workplace, like you're, like, you know, in, in this regard, like that it is becoming more common for messaging and conversation around, you know, I don't know even what the word being inclusive, being accepting, being aware, like uh, awareness. That's the word that gets used mostly around mental illness. But I think it is really dangerous when companies or people adopt that messaging before before understanding it and before knowing what it actually means and what it means to to have that in practice. So you know, same thing with anti-racism or you know being a equity diversity, inclusion, access, like those, that acronym that as the need, the real, what can feel like very urgent need for that shift to happen culturally in all different kinds of workplaces and sectors can push people and organizations to, to want to be that and to, and to, to start promoting it without being ready to actually change and and to and and often like changing like you said like stigma and and mindset is is a pretty big thing that mm-hmm. needs to change as well and that takes a lot of work and, and and takes i think often guidance you know like takes it's so out of step so out of tune with the different capitalist structures that we have that it's not intuitive how to do that like it it's not it's yeah. not even clear it's not even it's not even knowable sometimes for some organizations to make that change without commitment on their part and an openness to being guided through that process from people who do know what it means and what it takes. Yeah, I think that's so wise, Cole. Like, I I think we are in a, you know, not to overuse the coming out analogy, but I do think we're in that beginning. You know, I think that's what Bell Talks is all about. It's just like people feeling free to say, I'm this, I'm that. But, But then the shame of coming out is when people can't make room for it. So they, they say they get it, but they really are thinking in us and them. And they're really patronizing in like, oh, you take, you take whatever time you need. <laughs> it's, just, it's not true. Yeah. You have meetings the very next day. But that the understanding that if, if people were allowed to take care of themselves in the way that they needed to, actually more work would get done productivity would go up you know they there's high schools in the in the states right now that are experimenting with uh classes between 3 and 11 p.m and the and within a year the scores oh now i'm gonna have to find this article but i will uh the scores uh, you know their, their their grades went up their sense of happiness and belonging went up the parents were inconvenienced slightly you know having to get their kids at 11 but everything was better for those brains I'm sure there were brains in there that were like, no, please, no, I can't work at that time. Mm -hmm. But it's this idea of lip service to the stigma of not just being able to talk about it, you know, and that's why, you know, in the phone tree that we have that anytime anyone, you know, is deals with being a person who has contemplated suicide, those conversations go right to talking about it. We don't have to navigate, you know, the questionnaire 
the crisis line. <laughs> it's just sort of like, oh yeah, that's present for you today. Okay, so tell me about it. And it is almost always that deep listening that makes it okay and begins to shift something. It's not somebody saying, reacting to the crisis or trying to fix it. It's just being able to talk about it. And so I think when we're when we don't feel free to talk about something, that's where the shame subtly, subtly is still growing, right? And that it is, you know, to to link it to your wisdom of earlier, we are in a world where it's like you got to do something about this. You got to do something about this. Your your work environment, you know, we both work in theater and it was like big news 2 years ago when the National Theater of London was like we're going to go to 5 day a week rehearsals. And it was like, yeah, well, that's been the labor law for yeah. ever. Way to go, theater. You're going to give people a chance to like stay in touch with their family and friends, do their self-care, eat properly, do their grocery shopping. Because up until then, we had one day off, right? Impossible to keep up on your... So I think that it's it's really interesting is like, what's after this coming out part? So, you know, we're, people are coming out and saying, I'm this, I'm that. Again, it's like not all about diagnosis. I feel way better if the whole world was just like, sometimes I'm nuts. Sometimes I understand that I've had a traumatic background and my brain is wired differently. And there are things I can do that are going to help that. But I would love that it isn't such a big deal to say, you know, this, this, is, this is what's with me right now, today. I don't need you to fix it, but maybe... You could listen to me for 15 minutes in the coffee room yeah, and not have people running in terror, <laughs> getting, get, getting, because everybody could use that, you know, and that's, that's when I think stigma will begin to ease when we understand that you may not have a diagnosis, which is just a collection of symptoms that someone has decided <laughs> is a diagnosis, right? But that you, we are all we all have the capacity and probably have all experienced temporary insanity times when we are not irrational logic overwhelmed big emotions make bad decisions i don't know of any grown person who hasn't experienced that in some degree even if you don't clock it yeah and so if if it could be more a thing about humanity and and supporting each other's emotional lives and supporting like the fact that we know nothing, next to nothing about the human brain. And what would it be if we were each vigilant about this is when it's working best, then it, then it, that this is when it's not. Our schools are still designed to train factory workers. That's what they're still designed. We're going to train you how to sit still. You know, Maggie's in kindergarten. I don't want Maggie to big lesson after formal education to be now I know how to sit still and listen. Ideally, we want Maggie to come out the other side with like, okay, I can do that. And I'm also this and this and this and this. And here's my passions. Here's my curiosities, right? So when we look at the systems that were inside that can't possibly sustain mental health, they just can't. And then you see those most afflicted dropping off the edges, which many of my friends have. And sometimes I'm right at the edge. I know you are. I know many of the people we love are. It's, it's not until you've experienced those extremes that you realize how bad the stuff that's going on really is. And so if, you could, if you're inside and you can kind of make it work, you're not really going to go sound the alarm. You're, 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 it's the people who are like, not only do we smell the smoke, it's burning down. 
that are like the crazy people. And so, you know, I'm, you can tell where my brain is today. I'm all over in the big pictures and the in and out of ideas and images, but, but it is also one of the best things about myself. You know, maybe it's not the most efficient way of communicating, but it is one of the things that's best about me that keeps me here. It's one of the things I love about you. It's one of my favorite things about you. (laughs) Thank you. I, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, that like that little example of theater rehearsals making a switch, which happened, yeah, in in the UK a little bit. It it still is still very rare. Um, I mean, we've been out of, regular theater production schedules for COVID. But when it comes back, I would, I'll bet you my shoes. I'll bet you, I don't know. I'll bet you anything that the vast majority of rehearsals go back to working Monday to Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 (laughs) p.m., which is the norm, which is not just like a cultural norm. Like that's the practice set out by our union. Um, Like that's the standard contract that's sent by the, the artists union assume that schedule. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, in the individualized way, the solution should, could be like, well, yeah. So if, if you just wake up an hour earlier, then you can do your meal prep for supper so that you can, if you make your supper at 6am and then at seven, get your kid up, get them ready to go. You can get them to school figure out aftercare so that they can be picked up at 6 p.m. And then when you get home, supper's ready to go. If you can do that, then you will survive your rehearsal weeks better. You know, all these obligations that are put on the individual, which is like going to break down mm-hmm. or, or not happen at all. But if but if it doesn't happen, then that, then like, oh, you just didn't figure it out. Like that's your yeah. fault. Yeah. Like you didn't, you didn't figure out how to navigate this terrible system when really like the system should change. Yeah. We lose people, right? We we lose sensitive artists because they can't give that kind of endurance. They can't, they literally can't do it. Their mental health suffers, their physical health. So like, it's crazy. And then there's the shame of, oh, so what? We get to make theater. Like I was in a, a cab shortly, I think my last cab ride before everything locked down. And um, I had just flown back from Toronto and my cab driver was falling asleep on the way home, he was falling asleep. And so I said, um, sir, can you, can you pull over? Can you pull over? You're falling asleep. And so he did pull over and then he was like digging out like bottles of Coke and cold coffee. And he was like, I'm okay. I'm okay. And we just sat there for a little bit. And I said, listen, uh, you are really falling asleep. Like it's, it's like, I don't know. And he's like, and then he started crying and he was like, I work, this is my third, this is my third job. And then he told me a little bit about his life. And um, I don't know how long we sat there for. I, I don't. But I do know that the, the, the reality that it, it's taken so lightly how fragile we are as people and how badly we're doing, how badly we're doing, you know, and that uh, CERB in Canada, you know, the, the $2,000 monthly payment that came with COVID and the idea of basic income for all is like, could have so much more meaning life could have meaning like mental health you know we would see all the stressors taken off that system we would see all kinds of neighborhood and community connection where you didn't have to decide i have to do three jobs and i'm 
about to crash just to try and support my family. But somewhere along the line, you know that it's connected to who makes money and how. And it feels crazy because you're like, how could you not value human life and human well-being more than capitalism? And yet you sound crazy when you're the ones going, listen, the mental health industry is makes a lot of money. And, you know, there, yes, of course, there's good people within it. And of course, you know, being able to be hospitalized a few times saved my life. But <laughs> it's not, it's not about, you know, taking the best care of people possible. And it's not about caring. And I think that's part of what happens when it's like, when they say it's up to you to, you know, you know, how vigilant I try to be, and that I really believe that the, the answer to shame is accountability. And I try to have personal accountability. If I, if I miss a meeting, if I, if I leak with anger, if I, I try to not use my brain as a, a reason, not an excuse. And so, but it only goes so far because if I have opened up and I have said, I do deal with these things and I've been told by an employer or a contract, yeah, we get it. But then something happens and then they, they don't work with me again then it is the system, right? It, and so you get crazier and crazier. And, and even now it's like people aren't getting enough to eat. People don't have places to live. <laughs> like, and so you're not, you feel crazy because you're like, why aren't we taking care of these things? Like, what can I do? And again, you take it on as an individual. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the battle to shame is what can I do? What can I do? What can I take responsibility for for myself, but also to keep talking about these things that are very real. And when someone says, I'm experiencing a system like this, or I'm experiencing this inside of this, like it works for you, but it, to really listen because it's, it's genuine. I, I'm really struck by that story. It's, it sounds so extreme and it is extreme while simultaneously being like a, a daily experience, it sounds like for that driver. Mm-hmm. You know, there. The, I, I guess another aspect of shame is, like you were saying, being um, really conscious and 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 thoughtful about how you're experiencing shame, how you're contributing or working to change or aware of the systems that are. But shame is also an emotion that we inflict on others, you know, consciously or not. Mm-hmm. And so just with that story as an example, like there, your, your kindness to that, to that person, you're just your humanity, you're just seeing the humanity in that person and also being able to say it out loud and kind of identify it and open up that space is really meaningful. Another, another rider very well may have shamed that cab driver, mm-hmm. whether they knew it or not, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think, or, you know, the, the examples that we were talking about of like kind of coming out with your mental illness at work and how how that's reacted to both in the moment and, and in practice as it goes on. The, the power that we have as individuals to shame others is so potent. And sometimes, and that's, it's the other thing that really made me leave social media, in particular Twitter, where just the hunger the virulency of, of of people shaming others on purpose actively mm-hmm. is it's so upsetting mm-hmm. and so and, and like 
upsetting and sadly understandable. Like it's very clear what you get out of shaming someone else. Like you, you get power, you, like you build up your own social positioning. And there's a lot of justification that you can give for, for why it's good to shame others. But, but we all know, like everyone knows deep down, it's not changing anything. It's not, it's not having a positive effect. It's not changing other people's behavior. It's not in, engaging them in a way that they would be able to change their mind or opinion. It may, it may shut people out. And so some behavior may stop, but it's not, no one, everyone knows it's not healthy. Everyone knows it's, it's, it's harmful, but it happens so much. And I think, yeah, I think a greater awareness of, of how we inflict shame on others is really worthwhile and challenging work to do. Yeah. And also to not sit in our shame, like what is, how do we support each other again, not just individually, but you know, there's a lot of uh, change happening in the world right now. And so we are going to get a lot wrong. Like, you know, I, I'm thinking of equity, diversity, inclusion and accessibility work again, right? Like there's just, uh, there's just, I, I have to like not uh, use shame as a way of not engaging, right? So I have to like somehow go, this is going to make me probably feel bad, this conversation, but then to recognize that the shame wants to take hold, like it wants to go, you're wrong, you're foolish. And then if I can be accountable, right? Is that, it's that great Mia Mingus paradigm of, you know, accountability, you know, where it's like reflect and then apologize and then repair and then change behavior. And to me, that's the, that's the antidote. That's the antidote for, for that paralyzing shame, either, either, um, shouldn't say paralyzing that's really ableist too um that that shame that doesn't doesn't let me take action doesn't let me partake in life doesn't that i have to be able to sit with it long enough to to really see like what do i owe an apology here you know reflect and if i do do it and then the repair is like you can't expect everybody to just be cool you get it now that's going to the repair is like ooh making sure that if that shame comes up again, I don't put it on other people. And then the changed behavior is like, you know, I think for me, like recognizing shame as fast as I can. It is a part of me. It does come up quickly with me, but I can uh, deal with it. I can, I can have skills. I can, I have, you know, honest conversations with friends. I think the shame on social media is so sad because it's not real conversation, you know, it has no nuance. It's like firing giant missiles at each other and creating a big bowl. And, you know, one of the things about our friendship and the other friendships that we, we talk about, you know, is that we can get to the nuance. We can get to, you can have this sense of shame that if I'm walking with it, I know it's, I know it's my job to keep talking to it. Okay. I hear you. You're here. All right. You're, you're not the only thing that's here in my life, but what do you, what do you got to say? Okay. <laughs> you know, to keep in relationship to it, because I've been in places of my life where you don't, you can't even identify what you're feeling. You're just in this block of numbness and there's no way out. And that's, that's the worst place. So the deal is to be feeling. And I think the human capacities we have to feel it and to talk, to process, to, and not necessarily always to other professionals. Mm -hmm. Like that's the, just the thing I really believe in more and more is 
you know, where are those places in our lives where we can have the conversation that's, I'm not sure what my point is going to be, but I'm going to have this with you and we're going to keep talking. And it's not, it's not ever going to be a Ted talk. I'm not probably ever going to have a Ted talk with you, Cole. I don't know <laughs> if that's disappointing for you at all, but you and I will, will have Cole JD talks, but not who is Ted? Who is Ted anyway? Um, but you know what I mean? Like we don't allow enough. Yeah. Cause I, I think an alternative that often happens is I'm thinking particularly around the shame that's often attached to addiction mm-hmm. and how, and how often the source of your shame can also be an escape from it and what a, a spiral that can become. I, I I'm just coming out of a writing workshop for a, a play I'm working on that a, a central part of it is um, a family dealing with someone's gambling addiction, which is a, a thing my family uh, has, has dealt with. Um, and I guess still does. I, I guess it's a, there's a long tail to it. But part of the writing was me trying to uh, just continue to understand some of the things my family has gone through and, and writing really deeply and, and empathetically about gambling addiction. And one of the things that I've been thinking about how is for folks that are really, really, truly addicted to gambling in, in whatever shape or form that, that that can be such a short source of shame and it can hit a cycle of, of, of the casino is also, is also the place to escape that shame, that shame that you're feeling inside or that you're receiving or uh, perceiving from the other people in your life. There's a ver- there's, there's an aspect of going to, to the casino that for a little bit, you know, it like that does lift because a, you're getting your hit from, you know, all the just chemical shit that happens inside you when you're getting the hit of the thing you're addicted to. Uh, but it's also, there's like some anonymity that happens in casinos. There's like, you're known, but you're not really known. Like they know your name, they know your drink. Uh, they know a lot about you, but they don't know anything that you have chosen to not tell them. They don't know what your home is like. They don't know that the conversations that you've had with your family that night or, or the argument that you're going home to or the credit counseling session that you have in the morning that you're going to have to lie about, you know, what you did the night before. Like all, all those things can disappear for a little while. And, and I think part of, part of the allure of that is it is an escape from the, the shame that you're feeling largely caused by the thing that you're doing that it's also giving you relief like and and i i I feel like using drugs and other substances and alcohol like offers the same thing that in the absence of other release from that shame if if it's the thing that you know that works Mm -hmm. then then you go back to it even though you also know that it's it's the thing that's going to make it worse it's a real trap that the the things that you're describing the relationships and the capacity for staying with it understanding it talking about it yeah you know that that's a that's a more meaningful escape that's a more that's that's an escape that that takes you to somewhere else but it can it can feel i don't know it can feel impossible to to find sometimes but it is there and yeah and how how do we help ourselves get that yeah and you know i i i struggled with addiction for years and i think it's again one of those things that's largely been theorized by people who haven't experienced it and and that we don't um we're not talking the truth right we're just not talking life is too much 
It is overwhelming the way it's built right now. It, it is impossible to keep up and to do the right thing and to appear this and to, it's too much. And I don't think we know nearly enough about how fast even technology has changed our brains. And, you know, but I know that I, I you know, was part of abstinence communities for a long time. I personally am abstinence from drugs and alcohol. That's a personal choice and also a privilege that when I was ready, detox was ready, rehab was yeah. ready. I was privileged. Like this idea that addicts, when you're ready, the the services are there. It's just like mental health. It's part of mental health. It's like bullshit. We, often people are ready and there's nothing. I think still in Vancouver, there's like four only women's beds. Maybe there's a few more. I don't know. But like you have to calculate risks. You have to, you know, and the most successful programs are like two years long. In Europe, they're like, yeah, you got to get off the whatever it is. You got to figure out all this stuff. You got to live in assisted, like slowly start working two years. We don't have anything like that. If you have money, you you have more access. But the, the most important thing is like with harm reduction, I, I think the same thing with mental health. Like it's, it's like to, to understand, to have capacity, to not judge addiction. Like how could they pick up again? How could they more like they picked up? How do I support and love? Not in, not enable, but where do I get rid of that charitable thing again? Like I don't do that. You do, you know, Gabor Mate talks about if you're, if you live in this world, you're addicted to something, you know? So it, again, it's this us and them thing. It's like, oh, gambling and drugs and alcohol are bad, but denim and boots, <laughs> <laughs> they're okay or whatever it is. Right. And so again, this humanity of like, what is the common ground there? Yes. The very real need for escape, the very real need to, you know, uh, alcohol and drugs used to quiet the voices, but the consequence of that was enormous. And so you know, there's a, a great also a book that will link to Kate Bornstein, I think, 100 Things to Do Before You Commit Suicide uh, that she wrote in the 90s, I think. And, and, and I love that book because it's like, whatever, do whatever you have to do to stay on the planet this day. And then you can look at that stuff. But if the shame is so great and you're going to, you're in that place where our brains can get to, like, there's no way out. And there's no one really listening to me. And I've disappointed. There's the shame, right? Yeah. I've disappointed people again and again and again. And it's because we us and them it. It's the addict, it's the addicts and the nice people who try to love them. It's the crazy people and the nice people who try to love them. You know, and that's part of it. The part of the what we have to change is like what is the common ground? How can we find that compassion, that empathy? that's not coming from this charitable place, like that, that really sits with it in a, in a different way. And, you know, again, it, it ties back to things that my dad would call me a conspiracy theorist about, but you know, the amount of money that governments make off of casinos and uh, alcohol and now marijuana, uh, you know, and then the amount that goes into recovery, you know, that there's a great, you don't have to be a, uh, a scholar to understand the discrepancy there and to understand what benefits financially benefits is, is not, um, is clearly being prioritized. So blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And because these, these stigmas don't just affect, you know, how we are interpersonally, but they have huge 
repercussions, you know, th- like just talking again about basic income, like a real sticking point are, is stigma against people that use drugs, folks that aren't working. And, and that's the sense of being like, well, what are we going to do? Give a drug addict a $1,000 a month? You know what they're going to do with it, right? Which, which is, you know, a macro level response to the opinion a lot of folks have about people asking for money on the street. You're like, well, I'm going to give a panhandler five bucks. Well, he's just going to, so we can just go drink it away. Like it's that same stigma on a huge scale. That's again, not real. You know, in Vancouver, oh, I'm going to try to reference a study. Okay, good. Off the top of my head, which is always dicey, but I'll try anyways. In Vancouver, there was a, there was a, a pilot study around guaranteed income that was specifically providing unrestricted cash support to folks who are using drugs. And the results are that people use less drugs because they have support and resources mm-hmm. to make uh, mm-hmm. more choices, essentially. And it's not, and it turns out it was not a case of, of you give them money mm-hmm. and then it means they can get more drugs. Yeah. Like that stigma it was just not true. Like they had choice. They had not unlimited, but they had greater choice and agency and their lives, many, many of their lives changed. And, and a lot of that change involved using less drugs or not using drugs at all. Yeah. And all the work that's been done around mental health, you know, like if you have stable, safe housing, your episodes decrease. If you have some sense of financial security, not a lot, but enough to know I, I got it, I'm covered. Your episodes generally for a lot of, of different diagnoses go down. You know, and, and this is the trouble is like, we still have this world where we are educating all these people, higher and higher masters, PhD, and they become the experts, right? And they're so out of touch with like, there's not a virtuous cycle between the lived experience. Maybe there's like, I talked to somebody for an hour, but I'm getting my PhD and whatever. And I remember having this conversation with a doctor and going like, you know, people who are suicidal, it's not, it's not generally that you know, we want to die. You know, it's just that we don't like the life we have and we don't know how to change it. And, and it, and it's relative. You you don't get to say from your (laughs) academic perch, sorry, I learned a lot from academics, but you know, suicide has been so studied. Like just look it up like uh, on the internet and, and books that have been written. You have to, we have to look deeper. Why are people's lives lacking meaning? And the, what used to give it meaning isn't holding anymore. Like um, the death rate around, uh, around you know, middle, middle-aged white men in America got so high from suicide that it actually lowered the, the American death rate. It went down for the first time in years. That's the only developed country that's ever happened in. And if you looked at the, the people that were taking their lives, their life had lost all meaning. They were... They, they'd lost their jobs, they'd lost their communities, they'd lost their towns. So, it, you know, it, it's not just little individuals going, I want to die, I want to die. And so if we're not addressing those things and really addressing them, you know, so that, you know, we understand, Cole, I live in Vancouver now and, you know, it, I mean, we have more overdose deaths here per month than we have COVID deaths, you know, and that is an ongoing crisis and not something that is happening just in the downtown east side. Yeah. And so you're starting to see, again, people coming out, 
people un understanding that addiction goes has no preference, but it's only because people with privilege are being affected that we're starting to see change. So I don't know, man. I do. Stigma, oh, stigma Freud. That's how I think of it. Like I think it started, I just wish Freud was not the guy who had taken hold. I wish he was not the guy that had taken hold, that everything was in your subconscious and blah, blah, blah. Like I wish it would have been the guy who was like, hey, wow, we're, we're complex. We're really fragile. How do we, how do we talk about this? How do we, wait a minute, I should be talking, even as a therapist, I should be talking to another therapist because you know what I mean? Like I really wish the expert model had not taken hold. <laughs> and that is my final thought. <laughs> Here, I just want to reference something. As you were talking, I just grabbed my copy of Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown, writer and book that we both love, because uh, it reminded me of a phrase that I read in that book, where when Adrian, Adrian Marie Brown is talking about their late mentor, Grace Lee Boggs, mm. um, and this idea of organic intellectuals, mm. which is a phrase that also comes from someone named Antonio Gramsci and refers to intellectuals outside of traditional academic institutions, you know, intellectuals who develop organically in counter relationship to the dominant culture. I find it really powerful and really true of, of rejection of, yeah, the accreditation of expertise. Mm -hmm. And 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 just a, a great articulation of not just not not just lived experience because lived experience is is also a powerful source of knowledge, but but a a recognition of great amount of learning and wisdom that is built outside of universities. I think sometimes, oh, how do I say this? I think sometimes lived experience can be built passively as well. Like lived experiences is everything that you've experienced as you were living, whether you meant to or not. But this idea of organic intellectuals does also feel this like intentional journey of learning and sharing that knowledge and putting that knowledge to a purpose. I think in the way that uh, it's introduced to me in emergent strategy is, is that there's a real purpose to that expertise, that kind of intellectualism mm -hmm. that's built by mostly elders, you know, that's like built over years by elders in communities and organizing circles and activist groups. And it is, I don't know, it is better. <laughs> it is like, it's, it's better than a PhD in a lot of ways, particularly in terms of, of just like truth and relevance to, to the, the questions that, that we're asking. Yeah. Well, I just think that if we afforded more, you know, I, I, I love the PhD. I love, I, I love that deep thinking that they've been afforded around a subject. I love reading about that. But I also think that if that same time were afforded to other people, because the system that feeds the PhD, it starts from such a place of privilege, generally. And, and even if it's not privilege, it's taking thoughts that have to be into a certain form and have to make sense in a certain way. And I think there's a lot of this in madness, like a, a lot of deep thinkers who are, you know, imagine if they, if they had the time to like, think about this and put it down, which is what I think, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown and whatever community uh, support they have are honored themselves with. You can see it coming in outsider art. You can see it in, I think really like what we're talking about here is an outsider 
outsider mental health movement, but that is not all or nothing, right? So that, that it's, it's very respectful for other kinds of knowledge, other kinds of knowing, but it's this return to that we are living in a world where intellectual knowing is supreme. And the trouble with that is that we are emotional beings. And there's a big difference between thinking your way through life and feeling your way through the world. And that, that is like just the consolidation of what I truly believe after all these years of living with so-called madness is that I have to not be shamed that I am a feeling being, that my primary way through, world, uh, through the world is feeling. And if I, I also love to think, but if I, oh, if I just think, if I just try to understand in that way, I lose myself. And I don't think that is just my experience. Thus, our conversations. <laughs> JD, I'm wondering, as we're getting near the end of our conversation, thinking about where we started, I'm hopeful that just a, a good hour of you and I yakking at each other was, was good for you, was, was, you know, helped, helped kind of restore some of the, the spoons that, that you had lost throughout today or this week. But is there, is there a way for us to helpfully, healthily transition out of this conversation and, and help you go off on, on your, the rest of your day? I, I think, I think you, you already said it. I think that by connecting and, you know, feeling heard and not having to have uh, everything linear and logical, you know, being able to talk a little bit in circles, land some things that might have meaning and some that maybe we're better left unsaid, but I think that kind of space just opens up my own heart space. And I do, I feel, you know, like this is not my favorite way to feel, but I feel much more like, right. I remember why I'm here and what matters and what I got to do. I've got to do a panel, a panel conversation tonight about uh, mental health and, uh, and the arts. And I feel like I can go into that now without being totally cynical and unhelpful. So thank you. <laughs> good, good, good. Yeah. And I'm going to go and finish my sandwich. And then uh, I think I've got a book waiting at the library and then I'll get back to work. So I hope everyone has conversation partners out there that need them and that it is always better to phone a hotline, a crisis line or a warm line, uh, talk to a stranger it's always better to do that than not do anything at all. Yeah. And it's a crazy world. And, you know, what's crazier, me or the world? I don't know. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Cole. Okay, thanks, JD. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening. If our brains are making sense to your brains, there are a couple of ways you can help us out. Connect us with more people. If there are folks in your life who you think would enjoy spending some time with us, please pass this along to them. And, and I know you hear it on every podcast, but liking, subscribing, reviewing on whatever platform you're listening to makes a huge difference, especially in these early days. And if you'd like, you can support us with a little bit of money on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash madpractice. Big thank yous to Camille Craig for producing and composer Dana Ayotte for our fabulous theme song. If you'd like to learn more about us or our work, head to madpractice.org and chat with us on Twitter and Instagram. But most importantly, take care of yourself and each other. Love you, Cole. Love you, JD. 
Love you, Cole. Love you, JD.